morning, church. If you would like to open your Bibles to John 17, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 19. And for those who have the Black Church Bible, it's on page 903. So John 17. And just to give some context here, Jesus has been talking to his disciples and now he is going to pray to his Father for them. John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thanks again for having me. Good to be with you this morning. Can you pray with me? Oh, sorry, that's yours. <laughs> Let's pray. Our loving God, we thank you so much um, that you're a God who speaks, 
Thank you that you've made yourself known to us um, through your Son, the Lord Jesus, and in your Word. And so we pray now as we come to your Word that you would do that and reveal yourself more to us. Warm our hearts uh, with what it means to know you, who you are, and be in relationship with you through Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, um, one of the delights of being new to the coast is exploring different parts of the coast. We've only been here for a year, and so we keep discovering new things. We had our first trip to Wadalba the other day, which was a real highlight. That's right, someone from Wadalba. Um, but on the way to Wadalba, we drove through Tugra, and I saw this slogan on um, massive font on the side of a building, this is living. Can anyone tell me what the business is? No idea. There's two ways you could do it. You could either know the business or you could think, what business would be so pretentious as to put that? BCF, that's right. So it's BCF, boating, camping, fishing. Um, The implication being that what's life really about? Boating, camping, fishing. This is when you're really living, is when you're out there and you can relate, you know. You get out of the daily grind, you enjoy the outdoors, you sleep under the stars or in your darkroom tent if you choose and you throw a line and you have a beer with your family, your mates. (coughs) Beer with your mates, hang with your family. Um, but uh, that's living. But I wonder for you, what would that be? That obviously connects with people who already think that's living. Um, that's, their, that's their target audience. But what part of your life, what part of the world, what part of existence would you put the heading, this is living? And I guess there's an implied really in there, isn't there? This is really living. When I'm, what is it for you? I reckon this sentence, this, this idea gives us an insight into what we think life is actually about. So if you think BCF is living, presumably not just the shopping, but the enjoying of the things that you buy there, life is really about the next holiday, the next trip into the outdoors. What is life really about? I reckon for most Australians, life is, what the purpose of life is something like this, pursuing happiness, enjoyment, minimising discomfort, maximising comfort, enjoyment, pleasure. So we avoid pain, we pursue pleasure. But here's the thing, in our country at the moment, we've greater, higher standards of living, even with interest rate rises and cost of living, higher standard of living than pretty much any country in the world, any time in history. With greater economic prosperity, greater access to services, to, to um, goods, entertainment, more pleasure than we've ever been able to have before. And yet, we're more depressed, we're more lonely, we're more disconnected, more isolated, more unhappy than we've ever been before. Why is that? They don't know Jesus. It's because the pursuit of pleasure is not our purpose, is it? And the thing is, what happens when we pursue pleasure is not only do we uh, not get satisfied by it, we forfeit the greatest shot we have at um, what, what true joy is. So this passage, I reckon, is going to show us something really significant about both our purpose and about joy. I can find my little clicky button. There we are. Um, You won't see the word joy in this passage. Oh, sorry, you will see the word joy. You won't see the word happiness in this passage. Um, But the word joy, it's it's this idea of a a deeper thing than happiness. Um, Sometimes the word happiness comes up in the Bible, but it's usually actually just this word occurring in a different context that gives it a slightly different nuance. But come to it uh, here in, in verse 13. The word joy actually comes up a number of times in this Um, section from 13 to 17, the upper room discourse, um, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Have a look in verse 13 there. Now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, his disciples, 
may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Or in the NIV, they, they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Um, so a bit of context, as we've heard, Jesus is, it's the night before he dies, he's been teaching his disciples, gathered in a room together, they've shared a meal, he's telling them that he's going to leave, um, he's been talking about how the Spirit's going to come, but here he's, he's speaking to his Father, speaking out loud to his Father, and you kind of wonder, why does he need to speak out loud in order to pray to the Father? Can't God hear him already? Um, and the, the answer is, I think, he doesn't need to speak out loud any more than we need to speak out loud for God to hear us. But he's saying these things, he says, so that their joy may be complete. My joy um, might be fulfilled in them. This prayer is actually for the disciples' benefit, not for Jesus' benefit. It's so that we can listen in um, and have our joy complete. So notice, just before we get into this, the, the fullness of this passage, Jesus wants your joy. Isn't that good? So that as we think about sharing the Christian faith with our neighbours, family, colleagues, if you're here among us this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yourself, the offer of the Christian faith isn't some anemic, stifled form of existence. It's actually the life of joy. Jesus wants your joy. But what kind of joy is it? Um, it's my joy, Jesus says. It's the joy of the eternal Son who's always existed in perfect unity, love, wholeness, fullness with the Father. Perfect glory, perfect joy. He wants that joy in us. And so, ultimately, that, that joy is not something completely experienced until the new creation. It's part of how God answers this prayer, I think, is by sustaining his people to experience the fullness of joy in the new creation. But there's a genuine joy to be experienced in the Christian life now, today. And so I want to share with you four insights from this passage that help us understand the connection between joy and purpose. And they're related in a particular way. The first one is a central one, and the other three kind of flow out of that. And the first is that our purpose is to know God. So come to verse 3 of chapter 17. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, in verse 2, Jesus has just talked about how we come to eternal life. It's not something that we earn. It's not something we have to achieve. It's something given by Jesus. There's a bunch of people given by the Father to the Son, and to those the Father has given to the Son, He gives life. But what's the nature of the life that we have to look forward to? Um, it's what makes it attractive, what makes it us want to long for it. It's not just that it's really long, eternal life, that sounds exhausting. It's not just that there's chocolate fountains and puppies and surfing. What are we looking forward to? It's knowing God. This is eternal life, that they know you. What we're looking forward to is relationship with God. And this is actually what we're created for. It's what we lost in the fall. It's what Jesus came to restore. It's what we're looking forward to in eternity, knowing God, being in relationship with Him. But because that's our purpose and because that's what we're looking forward to, we can actually enjoy that now. It can actually start today. The enjoyment of it can start today because pursuing that purpose can start today. And not only can it start today, it's the best shot that we actually have a joy and happiness fulfilment in this life is by pursuing that purpose of knowing God. 
Um, some of you might be familiar with the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Um, it's a, a set of uh, questions and answers to teach the basics of the Christian faith. The first question up front, what is the chief end of man? Or you could substitute mankind, humanity. Does anyone know the answer? That's right. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> you're forgiven. No. Um, <laughs> glorify God and enjoy him forever. And my guess is that for most of us, if we've been Christian for a while or around Christian things, Bible things for a while, we get the first half, glorify God. Oh, yeah, we know that's what we're meant to do. But the second half is a little bit less kind of intuitive or, or familiar to us, potentially. How do you enjoy God? You can enjoy chocolate, you can enjoy friendships, you can enjoy footy, but how do you enjoy God? Well, here's the thing, you can't enjoy someone you don't know. So, for instance, I could tell you about my family, I've told you a bit about my family, my wife, my kids, their names, their ages, I could tell you where they go to school, I could tell you what my wife and I like to do for fun, I could tell you what my kids are into, what they like, what they don't like, and then you would know some things about my family, but until you actually come spend time with us, come to our house, play some backyard cricket, go to the beach with us, have a meal with us. You wouldn't actually enjoy us as a family because you wouldn't yet know us as a family. And so it is with God. You can know all kinds of things about God, but until you know God personally, you cannot enjoy Him. And if that is kind of confusing or strange to you, that eternal life is knowing God and that God is there to be enjoyed then it may be that you haven't actually fully grasped the essence of the Christian faith. Because it's not actually about keeping rules, being a good moral person. It's not about changing the culture or being different to the culture. It's not about knowing stuff about God, even really good, true, orthodox things about God. It's first of all about knowing God through His Son, by His Spirit, knowing Him personally. And so there's implications for our, our understanding of what we think the Christian life is about, but also about who God is. God is personal. That is, He's not just a force. He's not just sort of the mind and idea behind the universe. He's personal. He's relational. Um, he's relational within Himself as three persons, Father, Son and Spirit, always been in perfect loving union for eternity. But He's also relational in the way that He interacts with His creation. Um, he knows it. He understands it. He's not just a, a distant cosmic ruler in the sky, he's not an indifferent ruler or judge, he's attentive to his creation, he knows his people, he loves his people, he understands his people, he knows you, each of us. He's knowable, he can be known, he's made himself known, he wants to be known. And the Bible is very strong in affirming that there's one God uh, the God revealed in the Bible, Yahweh, or in the New Testament, the God revealed in the person of the Son, Jesus. And He has made Himself known, and He wants to be known by us. So the first way we can start enjoying God is to stop relating to Him as a, as a force or as a kind of indifferent, faceless person in the, in the sky, and start relating to Him as a person, as someone who loves you, as someone who knows you, someone who wants to speak to you and hear you speak to them, someone who has likes and dislikes, someone who you can get to know and understand. So we can get to know God, we can listen to Him and His Word, we can find out what pleases Him, what He dislikes 
um, what he's on about, where he's taking things, and we can pursue those things in our life um, and, and try and live them out, not as a sense of obligation or fear, but in relationship with the person that we know who's there with us as we do all those things. Our purpose is to know God and enjoy knowing him. And I want to just highlight three ways that we can do that um, in our life uh, that flow out of this passage from that core truth that life is about knowing God. So the first one, the first way we can enjoy God is to enjoy the knowledge of his eternal protection in Christ. Now, green font seemed like a good idea at the time. I apologise if you're up the back. <laughs> enjoy eternal protection in Christ. There's a couple of ways this comes up in the passage. The first is sort of implicit. The second is more explicit. I'll start with the implicit one, and that is the way that the Godhead, three persons of the Godhead, work together in perfect unity to bring about our salvation. We can have assurance because of the unity of purpose of our God. And we see that in a few ways here. In verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. There's this mutual glorifying of one another between the, the Father and the Son. We can see it in the way the Son works in unity, obedience to the Father in redemption. In verse 2, you, Father, granted him, the Son, authority over all people, that he, the Son, might give eternal life to those you, Father, have given to him. So there's this giving of people from the Father to the Son, and there's this giving of life from the Son to those people the Father has given to him. The, the Son is obedient to the Father in, in the plan of redemption, as he gives life to those the Father gives to him. In verse 4, it's there where the Son does the work that the Father has given to him. In verse 6, the work of the Son is to reveal the Father. So the Father gives people to the Son, and then the Son reveals the Father to those he's given. And in all of that, they're both glorified. In verse 8, the Father's given words to the Son, and these words enable his disciples to believe uh, in the Father and, and know that the Son is the one sent by the Father. So do you see the, the harmony of the workings of these persons, the Father and the Son, and the Spirit, uh, we've just been hearing, if we were to read through chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, the Spirit is coming to continue the work of the Son, to reveal Jesus uh, and reveal the Father and to bring glory to the Father and the Son. There's this distinction in the works of the three persons but there's a, a perfect unity in what they're achieving together and that ought not surprise us because there is one God uh, in three persons but one will, one mind, one purpose, one goal that they're working towards and what is that goal? It's our salvation. It's, it's his glory and our good. He wants us to know him and be in relationship with him and not just for a while not just while we're doing well at being good Christians, but for eternity. So the first way we can be encouraged of God's protection of us is that the triune God is completely united in his pursuit of our salvation and preservation into eternal life. But the second way we can be encouraged to enjoy God's eternal protection is in the words of Jesus' prayer. And um, I'll be honest with you, I prepared this sermon initially from the NIV and then found out you guys use the ESV. Now, the word protect isn't in here, but it's the same Greek word you'll be encouraged to know. The word keep, protect, guard, it's the same word. Verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, or at least he won't be, 
uh, in a moment. But they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them or protect them in your name. And down in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them or protect them from the evil one. Now, I want you to think for a moment about the disciples, where they're at in this narrative. They've just left their homes, families, houses, jobs three years ago. They've spent three years following this guy Jesus around. They've given their life to to him, being a disciple to them. He's gotten on the wrong side of the law and, and all kinds of people with power want him dead. And now he's telling them that he's leaving them. Where does that leave them? The same people who want him dead presumably are going to want them dead next. What's Jesus' answer to this question? Where does that leave them? His answer is they will be protected. But notice it's not protection from all physical pain or emotional discomfort. In fact, at the end of chapter 16, he said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Now, he says here that he's not praying the Father takes them out of the world, which would be you know, to go to heaven now where there's no sin, suffering, evil, pain. Rather, he wants the Father to protect them in the world. And in verse 15, protect them from the evil one. So he's promising spiritual protection, eternal spiritual protection, so that their joy may be complete. He wants them to know that this is what the Father is doing so that their joy may be complete. He wants you to know that he has prayed to the Father that you be protected so that your joy may be complete. And you can be sure, because this is the one God in three persons, that prayer is going to be answered, that you will be protected if you're someone in Christ. And knowing that your Father in heaven is protecting you ought to bring us joy. Not in a, in a frothy, bubbly happiness sense, but in a deep sense of rest, peace, contentment. There's nothing in this world that can hijack you or derail you. There's no sin that you could commit that would put you outside of God's grace. The devil can't take you out of the Father's hand. There's no person who could come into your life and and derail it such that you'd be outside of God's grace. There is no one greater than our God and those who the Father has given to the Son are given life and protected by the Father. Um, over the holidays, my boys went for, away for a couple of nights to their grandparents' place, to my parents' place, and I got a call from mum sort of around dinner time on the second day. Uh, so they've had a night there. They're starting to get a bit weary. Um, she told me Joey, so this is my eight-year-old son, he's not uh, doing well. He's crying. He's not talking to anyone. He's not saying what's upsetting. He's saying he's feeling sick, but that's about it. Um, now, we've always told our kids, wherever you are, Whatever's happening, if you're not feeling safe or comfortable, whatever, we'll come and get you. Um, so this was my time to come and t- come good on that promise. Um, they're in Port Macquarie, so it's not just a drop around the, around the corner. So I, I talked to mum, you know, maybe we can meet halfway. She offered to meet halfway. We'll, we'll, t- we'll touch base after dinner, see how he's going. She calls back, he's vomiting now. Ugh. Okay, so... You stay there. I don't want that in your car any more than I want it in my car. I'll come to you. And so I spoke to him and said, Joey, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm going to come and sleep at Grandma and Grandpa's house. So now go to bed. 
when you wake up, I'll be there. I love you, I'm coming, I'm on my way. And you know what? With that knowledge, the vomiting stopped, the tears stopped, he went to bed and slept like a baby. Why? I take it in part because he was just exhausted and missed his mum and dad. But he knew that his dad had his back, that his dad was there with him, as good as with him, he could rest in peace. And this is the kind of rest, the peace that we can enjoy, knowing that your father is protecting you. The one God, Father, Son, Spirit, is on his throne. He wants you to enjoy the knowledge of his protection of you, that there's no failure from you, there's no force outside of you that can harm you ultimately. There might be changes in your circumstances, there might be things that you do that he will ask you not to do, there'll be sin that he wants you to put to death, there'll be wisdom and, and stewardship that he wants you to exercise with your, your life and your time and your, the things that he's given you. But in all of that, the things outside of your control as well as the things under your control, there is nothing that is outside of his control. And he is at work to protect you and to bring you home for eternal life. So we can enjoy the knowledge of his protection of us in Christ. The second way we can enjoy him is enjoy sharing in the mission of Christ. Now, in this prayer, um, Jesus makes two big requests. He says a bunch of things, but there's two actual requests. One of them is protect them. The second is sanctify them. And remember, he's asking these things for, saying these things out loud for our joy. And the next few verses is where this, this idea of sanctification comes up, or the, the word sanctify. And they start out sounding simple, but there's a bit of a twist. I want you to have a look at the words. Um, gosh, that looks like a small font. It looks bigger on my computer. Sorry about that. Anyway, it's in the Bible in front of you as well. Sanctify them. So it starts out looking like a string of unrelated statements. Sanctify them in your truth. Sorry, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Now, at this point, the ESV is both, I think, really helpful, but also a little bit cheeky at the same time. Um, and that is, it's got to do with this word consecrate. And you can see I've put there consecrate slash sanctify. So the word for consecrate is the same word as sanctify. Um, and so the, the word sanctify, it means to make something holy, to, to set it apart for a specific purpose. In essence, it's to be different, set apart, either by nature, as God is holy, different because of who and what he is, or by choice, that, we would, that he would set something apart or that we would set something apart for a special purpose. So to consecrate, to sanctify, to make holy, it's all the same word. And we, we often use the word sanctification in, in sort of Christian, Christianese to talk about growing in holiness, putting sin to death, that kind of thing, which is right and, and good. But I want to suggest there's something slightly different that's intended here, or a particular nuance to what that ought to look like. Because at first these seem like unrelated statements, but I, if we put in the word sanctify for consecrate, you can start to see this continuity of thought, can't you, between each of these statements. So sanctify them by the truth. Um, the next idea is not a new one. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world... So there's a sameness of the sending. And then in verse 19, sanctify them, or consecrate, but sanctify them. Oh, sorry, for, for their sake I sanctify myself, that they may be 
sanctified. So there's a sameness with the sanctifying, just as there's a sameness with the, the sending. But you can see why the ESV has got consecrate, because otherwise we'd be sitting there scratching our heads going, what does it mean for Jesus to sanctify himself? Isn't he already holy? Does he need to be made holy? How does that work? And consecrate is helpful because it reminds us of things that are consecrated in the Old Testament particularly. So three Ps, people, places and presence. Presence or offerings, but offerings doesn't start with P. People are consecrated. Um, priests in particular, which also starts with a P, that's helpful, isn't it? Um, they're consecrated, set apart for a purpose that is to serve God um, in the temple, to, to, to fill that particular role, set apart for that. Places get set apart, consecrated. First the tabernacle and then the temple. And presence or offerings gets uh, sanctified, consecrated. Before a gift is offered, it's, it's set apart for a new purpose to be a, a gift to God. But these three things have a lot in common, don't they? They're centred around a system that God put in place so that a holy God can be in relationship with sinful people by means of this system of temple, sacrifices, priests. So when Jesus, on the night before his death, says he consecrates himself, he's not saying he's, he's decided to be more holy. He's already holy, pure, sinless. Rather, he's committing himself in a, in a final way to go and fulfil his mission, to complete the work of salvation, to offer himself as, as the final sacrifice, the final once-for-all offering to deal with sin, to serve as the last priest who will make atonement between God and humans, and to fulfil what the, the temple was a shadow of, that is, the presence of God with his people, because he himself is God present with us, making a way for us to be in relationship with God. So Jesus here is committing himself to the cross, to the plan of salvation. He will die as a substitute in place of sinners. He'll take on himself the punishment of sin so that we can be reconciled with God. And this is the purpose of the, the priests, the, the sacrifice and the temple. But in a new way, Jesus is going to fulfil all that that was anticipating as he dies and rises and brings relationship with God. And so if that's what it means for him to consecrate himself, what might it mean for us to be consecrated or sanctified? So sanctification here isn't just about our personal private godliness. In this context, it's about pursuing the same purpose, being set apart for the same goal that Jesus was set apart for. He's just said in verse 18, as he was sent in the world, so we too, his disciples, are being sent in the world. Now, there's a special sense in which that's true of the apostles, who's kind of his immediate audience. But in verse 20, we see this, this whole prayer is broadened out to include not just them, but those who will believe in their message. So Christians then are set apart, not just to be good, privately moral believers, but to be on the same mission for which the Son was sent into the world. Now, for each of us, that's going to look different in keeping with how God has made us, the gifts he's given us. As a church, that looks in a certain way, depending on the makeup of it and the context that we're in and all those kind of things. Some of us might be really great at just making friends, connecting with people. And, and so we can help each other to merge our friendship networks so that our Christian friends and our non-Christian friends get to know each other and, and we kind of get mixed into the same pot and they find themselves being someone who hangs around with Christians. Some of us might be great at explaining the gospel 
And so as we come into contact with other people who don't yet know Jesus, we can lean on each other and one another's gifts to do that. Some of us might just have servant hearts with capacity to do a number of things that will be helpful to, to put on an event that we could invite people to or to make church happen week to week. Some of us might be really great at explaining the gospel to kids and help them grow up understanding who Jesus is. But the point is, as followers of Jesus, we're called to be part of this mission, this purpose that he was sent into the world for, to make disciples and see them grow into maturity in Christ. And so as people in a church, we're to find our own part in labouring for this cause. I don't know if you feel this, it strikes me that as I get older in relative terms, someone was telling me earlier how young I look, which I'm never sure to know if it was a compliment or not, but <clears throat> I think it was taken as a compliment, I was assured, yep. <clears throat> as I get older, things just seem to last for less and less long, don't they? And it's not just because of planned obsolescence. And my Ryobi lawnmower died the other day. It's six, I think six years and one week since I bought it. Guess how, how long a Ryobi warranty is? Exactly. So things just don't last, but also the things that we give ourselves to don't last. Our achievements, our, our accolades, whatever, they're so quickly just eclipsed by someone else's achievement and the world just moves on and forgets. The things we build, the things we create fall apart. The things we do are quickly forgotten. As followers of Jesus, we're made to give ourselves to the one thing that actually lasts. And that is seeing people saved for eternity from hell to enjoy eternal life in heaven with Jesus. When you engage in the mission of Jesus, you're part of something that lasts and it's something really big. Um, when, when I was in primary school, I was a music nerd. Um, I used to sing in choirs. If it helps, I was in a really selective choir. I don't know if that makes it better or worse. There was a hundred of us that were chosen to sing the national anthem in the closing ceremony of the Olympic Games. So I wasn't Nikki Webster, but I was, you know, the next best thing. Was, does everyone know who Nikki Webster is? Some of the young ones won't know. But. And I, I want, I'll never forget the feeling of walking out into Homebush Stadium. It used to be 110,000 capacity before they took the bits off the ends. And everyone there waving the little torches as we came out onto the sort of the floor of the arena. It was like being in the middle of the Milky Way. It was incredible. I thought, wow, this is huge. What an incredible thing to be part of. But do you know what? It was over like that, wasn't it? Two and a half minutes or however long it takes to sing the national anthem. And we were ushered back out of, into, the, into our little holding cell down the bottom. <laughs> but that feeling, that moment, is just a glimpse of the reality, the truth, of what it is to be a part of God's kingdom. And the church doesn't look spectacular in this day. In fact, it often looks really ordinary. But in eternity, we will be joined not just by 110,000 people, but by the innumerable crowd of people, generations of believers all through history who have come to know God, the true and living God. And do you think that a single one of us there on that day will regret one drop of blood, sweat or tears that was spent in pursuing that kingdom cause? Of course not. I was chatting with Dan um, a couple of months ago, we caught up, he was sharing with me about how things, you know, things are kind of taking shape, forming in a direction. And, and this year, we want to be really intentional about engaging in mission, in evangelism. What a wonderful thing to be led in. Wouldn't it be wonderful for Dan to hear, and not just for Dan, for your father to know 
that you have been prayerfully thinking, considering, wondering, marvelling at, exploring, brainstorming, all of the ways that this year could be your most active, intentional year on mission. As an individual, as a family, as a couple, as a household, whatever it might be, as a church, what are the opportunities you have? What are the connections you have? What are the gifts among you? What are the things you could do? What are the needs around you? What a joy to be part of something that actually lasts, something that really matters. And remember, Jesus prayed this prayer for our joy. He wants us to be part of something that matters, not that we'd have a sense of guilt or obligation, or oh, am I doing enough? But that our joy may be complete, knowing that we're labouring at something that matters, and knowing that even when we try something and it doesn't work, that our Father delights in us working in the family business of what he's about making disciples and saving them for eternity. So we can enjoy God by understanding his protection of us, sharing in his mission, but finally by being loved by the Father in Christ. I reckon one of the most incredible sentences in the whole Bible, it's quite a claim, um, is here in this chapter. It's in verse 23, but we'll take a run up from verse 22. So remember, Jesus talking to his Father, I have given them, his disciples, the glory that you gave me. That's incredible. That they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and, get this, I have loved them even as you have loved me. Just let those last few words sink in. I have loved them, oh sorry, you have loved them, the Father has loved us, just as he has loved his son, the same love. And remember, what is that love? It's the perfect joy, perfect wholeness, perfect fullness that the triune God has been enjoying in himself for all eternity. Perfect love, perfect enjoyment of one another. The gospel is the story of the overflow of that full, complete love for God's creatures to be swept up into an experience. So when the Spirit gives us life in Jesus, He unites us to the Son, and so we come to share in all that the Son has. We share in His status by grace. We share in His glory, we just saw by grace. We share in His love, the relationship He has with the Father. So in the Gospel, you are loved if you're someone in Christ. And not as an earthly father loves his children, because some of us have had great experiences of a father who loved us, others have had a father who was really hard to love, and, and many of us have had something, you know, everything in between. But this father is not like none of those because he's our heavenly father. He's different, he's perfect, he loves perfectly, he knows us perfectly, he doesn't make mistakes, he doesn't have sort of conflicted motives, he doesn't get tired and grumpy. He seeks his glory, yes, but as the one, and the only one in the whole universe who is, for whom that's actually the right thing um, to do. And he wants to share his glory with us. It's a bit like the father in an NRL team, um, or insert whatever code of, of choice. Think of the NRL grand final. You've just won. What do you do? If you have a son, you call him out on the field. He's wearing your jersey and you put him on your shoulder and he shares your glory. Jesus, or God the Father, wants to share his glory with us. 
He wants, to, wants us to look around and see everything that he has done, what he's created, his plan of redemption, and marvel at it, not from afar, not from a distance, but as the one who he loves, who's on his shoulder, delighting in, in who his dad is. He loves you not in, a, not in a fickle way or fleeting way, not depending on how you're going. I'm conscious that as a parent, maybe you are too, often our kids' experience of our love is very dependent on how they're going or how we're going. And so... Partly that's because, you know, they do the wrong thing and they don't experience your discipline as love. But partly it's just because we get, or I get tired, grumpy, impatient, and it's easy for them to think that they fall out of love or favour with me depending on how I'm feeling and how they're behaving. And we don't want that to be the case for our kids, do we? But your Father in Heaven is not like that because regardless of what we might perceive our experience of His love to be, His love is unchanging for us because He loves us in Christ, in the Son, and that love is eternal and unchanging because it's the love of the triune God. Because you're in Christ, He receives you as though you were perfect like His Son, always, on a good day or a bad day, the Son who He's been delighting for eternity in. He delights in you as His sons, men and women included, because we're in Christ the Son. And can I say that changes everything? Knowing that you're loved by the Father changes everything, doesn't it? You have this unchanging, immovable constant in your life because God's love for you is the unchanging love of the Father for the Son. It's a foundation for your life. You could have a million things change around you, but the fundamental of your universe has stayed the same when your life is based on relationship with God. You have His approval because he loves you. You don't have to live for other people's approval or feel bound by their opinion of you. What, we, what, what will they think of your behaviour or your decisions or what are their expectations or critiques of you? No, your father loves you. You don't have to change or be liked by others to receive their love because your father in heaven knows you, all of you, and loves you. You don't have to be afraid of others really getting to know you and stopping loving you because your Father already knows you better than you know yourself and He loves you. You don't have to bring to your relationships a need to be loved because the Father loves you. If you're in Christ, you're loved with an unchanging love, an eternal love. So friends, our purpose is not the pursuit of happiness. What a shallow, what a hollow, disappointing thing. It's not the avoidance of pain or the maximising of pleasure. Not only does that not work, we lose the greatest opportunity we have for enjoyment, and that is pursuing our purpose, knowing God, being in relationship with Him. When are you really living? When you're enjoying God, enjoying the peace of His protection, pursuing His plans, mindful of His love for you. Friends, that's what we're created for. This year, I encourage you, how can you enjoy God? How can you walk with him, know him in relationship with him? Enjoy the peace of his protection of you. Enjoy sharing in his mission. Enjoy being mindful of his love for you as your father in heaven. Will you pray with me? Our gracious God, we marvel at who you are, the true and living God, eternally in joyful, loving unity, Father, Son and Spirit. We thank you, Father, that you've 
sent your son. Thank you that you created us to know you and that despite our rejection of you, our sin, our rebellion against you, your son came that we could be reconciled to you. Thank you that you sent your spirit that we could have our hearts enlightened, our eyes opened, brought to life in Christ. And Lord, by your spirit, would you fill our hearts with the peace of eternal assurance knowing you are protecting us? Would you fill us with a vision of how we could be engaged in the same mission for which you sent your son to make disciples for eternity? Would you fill us with joy knowing your constant unchanging love for us as those who are in your son? We pray that you would fulfill his joy in us. And we pray this for his glory. Amen.